Thank you everyone for joining today. My name is Daniil, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Noelle Hunter. She is President Emeritus and co-founder of iStand Parent Network. Her daughter Mona was abducted to Mali in 2011 and returned home to the United States in 2014. Noelle has testified before the U.S. Senate Committee on Foreign Relations, shared her story, and advocated for IPCA reform in conferences, on webinars, and on social media. She works in cooperation with fellow parent advocates to empower parents to return their children home and to prevent and end this painful problem. Noelle is a lecturer at the University of Alabama in Huntsville, where she has taught classes on international parental abduction. And she is currently working to open the first ever academic center focused on international parental abduction in the U.S. and maybe even the world at the University of Alabama. Without further ado, let's get into today's episode. joined today with Dr. Noelle Hunter, who's here to share her experience as a left-behind parent, as well as the founder of one of the largest NGOs in the States supporting left-behind parents and children. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us today, Noelle. Thank you. I'm so happy to join this conversation. So I know that your advocacy work really started because you and your daughter were victims of international parental abduction. Can you tell us a bit more about what happened to your daughter? Sure, I can. And although it was almost nine years ago now, it's just very fresh. And so I lived in Moorhead, Kentucky, a very small town in eastern Kentucky. Myself, my then husband at the time, my daughter from a previous marriage, and my youngest daughter, Maya, Maya Muna. And uh, we had been married for a few years and Maya was born. And at the time, both my husband and I were teaching um, at a local university. And candidly, our, our marriage dissolved. There were just some familial problems. I had some health challenges. Lots of things happened. And the relationship dissolved. When the relationship dissolved, we separated and I moved into um, another part of the town and we kind of went back and forth with sharing uh, custody of our daughter. And that was a court ordered, a shared parenting agreement. Kentucky is one of the first states to really employ shared parenting under law. When we went through our final custodial proceedings, the uh, judge ordered that we have joint custody, meaning equal time. She would spend a week with me and a week with him, and then we would alternate holidays and summer vacation. My ex-husband disagreed with that, and that was in October of 2012, by the way. Um, So my ex-husband disagreed with that ruling, and we knew during the custodial proceedings that he was a flight risk with her, that she was at risk for abduction because he is from Mali, West Africa, and he has a strong family network there, very extensive family network. They are fairly affluent by Mali standards. And so all of the indicators were there, even though I didn't even know about international criminal child abduction at the time. So the judge ordered that with joint custody that I keep her U.S. passport 
because we thought that she was at risk. Unfortunately, that did not deter my ex-husband. Now I know from obtaining a passport uh, for our daughter from the Mali embassy in Washington, D.C., because she's a dual citizen of the United States and Mali. She was four at the time. And on Christmas Day, um, I dropped her off at the McDonald's for her father's portion of the holiday time sharing. And he was supposed to keep her from Christmas Day until New Year's Day. And when I dropped her off, I knew that he was going to take her because he kept asking for her passport. And I told him that I would not give it to him unless he followed the court order to provide me with travel, itinerary, where they were going to be staying, etc. He said he wanted to travel to Mali for the holidays. I refused to give him the passport. And in the end, he said, fine, keep your damn passport. You'll be hearing from my attorney. And I knew at that moment that he was going to take her, but I didn't know what what I could do. And so I just fairly was in a paralysis from Christmas Day to New Year's Day. On New Year's Day, I went back to the McDonald's to pick her up and he didn't show. I sat there from 12 o'clock, one o'clock, two o'clock. By three o'clock, I went to his house and there was no vehicle there. There was no one answering the phone. A couple of days later, the phone was disconnected. Uh, all of the stuff was moved out of the house and I knew. I reported it to the local police who didn't really know much about international parental child abduction. And they told me she wasn't missing because she was with her father. And, you know, I just knew at that moment that I had to take it into my own hands. And so for the next two and a half years, and that's how long it took to return her, I summoned every part of me as a mother, as a believer, as a person in this very small and supportive community. I uh, gathered an online uh, following of people who were helping us through the Mission for Muna. That was the name of our campaign. I was able to enlist the support of all three of my members of Congress. I was able to get a very good response from the State Department. Even the nation of Mali was cooperative to an extent in returning my daughter home. And it did take two and a half years, but you know my story is a success and the amount of time that it took is not very much at all. And so you know, out of that, um, I have devoted myself and my life to help other parents. So my daughter was four when she was taken. She was almost seven when she came home. She's just about to turn 15 now. And we're going on with our lives and trying to help others to come out of this awful experience or prevent it from happening. Well, that's amazing. And I'm, I'm so glad that you were able to reunite with her. Two and a half years is a long time, but for some of the parents that we know, it, it can seem like a short time. Some of them have spent well over a decade without their children. So as a lot of our listeners will be left behind parents that, as you can understand, are really desperate for any way to get a hold of their children, to let their children know they love them and, and to get their children returned home. Looking back at your experience, who would you say were the key, the key players that helped reunite you with your daughter as quickly? I mean, two and a half years isn't quick, but as quickly as it did happen. Thank you very much for asking that. And I, I two and a half years by comparison is a very short amount of time. And so my heart aches for parents, like you said, who are going on decades without uh, having access to or seeing their children. So I had a couple of very key players. And then I just had this vibrant 
community, primarily through social media all over the world. And it was just something about the way I told our story, the transparent nature of the way that I told it. I never really attacked the abductor, the abducting father. Like I always kept it on, you know, my daughter and her safety and her need, her vulnerable status and her need to come back to her Kentucky home. And so along those lines, the strongest actor that I had was um, U.S. Senator Mitch McConnell. At the time, he was the Senate Minority Leader, and I was reluctant to even ask him for help. So I was almost a year and a half into my campaign before I asked him for help. But by that time, I was so desperate because just my work in trying to work through the legal channels and with the Mali government was not successful. So Senator McConnell took my case and he took it very personally. And he began to contact the U.S. ambassador to Mali on three separate occasions. He called the Mali ambassador to the U.S. from his embassy in D.C. up to Capitol Hill to give account for, you know, what is happening and why is it taking so long. In various cases, he would call and have conversations with Mali's minister of justice. He was in frequent contact. He and his office were in frequent contact with the State Department. And so he was my number one federal actor. Also, I had a very good country officer at the U.S. Department of State. I know that that's not the case, unfortunately, with some of the parents that we work with through my nonprofit, I stand, but I had a really engaged country officer and she was able to work with me and the embassy counterparts in Bamako to secure some welfare and whereabouts visits and just really keep the pressure on the abducting parent and on Molly. And then finally, like I said, you know, I had a lot of support in my home community of Moorhead, Kentucky, and online. And so all of these, what we call the soldiers on the mission from Muna, they would do things like calling the Mali embassy, repeatedly shutting down their fax lines, joining me to protest in front of the embassy, calling members of Congress to get them involved in the case. And so, you know, I had an extensive support community as well. I'm glad to hear that those decision makers in power were doing their job and really fighting to get your daughter back as they should have been. That's great to hear because we don't unfortunately hear that as often, I think, as we should. So as we say, two and a half years for a four-year-old child, for a mother, a father, a parent, that's, that's a long time to be away from your child. So what would you say were the barriers or specific actors that, that got in the way of a quick return for your daughter? That's a great question. So probably with many of the cases, my fellow parents, the nation of Molly was at first an obstructionist, primarily because they didn't consider her to be abducted. She's with her father. She has a very Malian sounding name. She's from a family that, you know, is of some prominence. And so from Molly's perspective, she was just home. And I remember very vividly the first time that I went to Washington um, to meet with one of the consulars at the Mali embassy. And he essentially, what I like to call, gave me polite and smiling silence. Very polite, very respectful, but essentially saying, well, she's with her father and we can give you a visa and you can go and visit her whenever you want. And when I raised the uh, point that she is internationally abducted, you know, that's not even a concept in Mali. 
You know, it really isn't. And so one of those barriers is that nation and probably other nations as well, not having the same understanding that we in my nation in the USA have that abduction is real, that a parent can kidnap a child and that another nation should have some expectations about resolving that. So that was barrier number one. Barrier number two, I remember this so vividly, was my local law enforcement. On New Year's Day, when I went to the police to report her, you know, they essentially said, as I mentioned before, you know, she's not abducted, she's with her father. But then they also, you know, the detective said, well, I guess he just got tired of dealing with you and took her. And so, you know, that was really painful. It was a dagger in my heart and the moment that I was most vulnerable. But what that staff the attention for me or got me in motion is that I realized that I was going to have to educate the police, the courts, and pretty much everybody around me about IPCA. And so law enforcement was a barrier. They were already gone out of the country and the FBI would confirm that within a week after the abduction, but I had to get a court order in order for them to enter her into the National uh, Criminal Information Center, the NCIC. Um, into, into that database, which then triggered an Interpol yellow notice for her. So first the nation of Mali, then local law enforcement. And then unfortunately, you know, um, there were just other people who said, well, she's, why can't you just go get her? And so a lack of understanding about IPCA was probably the third big barrier for me. Noelle, I know that iStand has an annual conference and that this year it will be held virtually in October, I believe. Can you tell us a bit more about the conference and how parents can get involved in that? Yes, thank you so much. So recalling that iStand started in 2014 with 13 parents in Washington, D.C., and it was three-day gathering. On the first day, went on Capitol Hill and met with our members of Congress to educate them on the issue. That was on Wednesday. On the Thursday, we had a day-long conference and we invited speakers, the former director of the International Center for Missing Exploited Children, some survivors, et cetera. And so we had a day-long conference on issues and empowerment. And then on Friday, we did something called an embassy walk in which we effectively marched to the embassies where our children were held and held public protests, calling our children home and seeking to meet cooperatively with those nations to return them. That was in 2014. Last year, uh, we held our eighth annual conference in Washington. It was the biggest one ever. We had over 80 attendees and, you know, three days of high level engagement. And this year is going to be virtual. And that's for a couple of reasons. One, the pandemic has just taken a toll on all of us and we're exhausted. And so it takes a lot to produce a conference. And so this year um, we are holding, holding it virtually to give our staff a chance to rest. We're also holding it virtually because like you said earlier, there's real movement and real new momentum in our cause. And we're going to use this as an opportunity to circle the wagons, close the ranks, so to speak. And so this conference will be very intimate. It's all by Zoom and there will be breakout rooms in which we will talk about working with you, actually. Um, how to infuse technology into your search for your children, how to stay sane during a long-term abduction, how to interact with your returned children, and the difference between um, this and our regular 
regular conference, obviously it's is virtual and we won't have the con- the Capitol Hill day and we won't have the embassy walk. But the main difference is we are, this is part of our shifting the narrative and regaining the momentum that was lost during the pandemic. And so the conference is on October 1st. It's also completely free this year. We charge a nominal fee for our in-person conferences. And so on Facebook and on our social media pages and on our website, you'll soon see registration for it. And it, it'll be just a full day. You can go in and out of various Zoom rooms for conferences or topics that are important and interesting to you. We'll have a social hour. And so we hope that intimacy, being able to join this from the privacy of your own home, if you need to like turn off the screen and cry or whatever, you know, we are using this as an opportunity to rebuild the community, some of those connections that were lost. And then the third and final reason why we're having it virtually this year is we are planning for a huge, big shindig for our 10-year diamond anniversary in Washington in 2023. So we're saving our resources and our energy for that. So within a, uh, about a week or so, you'll be able to find information and register for the conference. It's October 1 on Zoom. Thank you. Thank you for sharing about that. We're really looking forward to attending and being part of that amazing event. And we, again, will be linking the webpage for iStand in the description. So stay tuned for future announcements about the conference that's going to be happening in October. So at Find My Parent, for us, it's very important to ensure we hear the voice of children. And it is very hard to to reach those children for obvious reasons. Many of them remain abducted. And so reaching them is impossible. And then many children who are returned, of course, we have to respect um, the fact that they're just children and they are overcoming a lot of emotions and experiences that many adults uh, would struggle with. So I'm just wondering... Uh, What effect did you see that this had on your daughter, especially when she initially returned home? And how did you go about managing that? I just had a conversation with my daughter yesterday. She's 14, about to be 15. And, you know, we were just unpacking her school year and it was just challenging school year just because of lingering pandemic and middle school and all of that. And somehow in that conversation, she began to bring up the suffering that she experienced in Mali. And she did suffer in some ways that are just so painful for me, even nine years later, to know and learn about her. You know, her grandparents didn't speak any English at all. And so for the two and a half years that she was there, you know, she would strive to have to learn how to communicate with her grandparents because her father dropped her off there and then went elsewhere in Mali to do whatever family business or whatever. And so she would tell me, you know, she wouldn't understand her grandparents and they would yell at her and they would slap her because she didn't do this or she didn't do right. Yesterday, she told me something that I didn't know. One time she was drinking some juice and I suppose she wasn't supposed to. And the grandfather snatched the juice from her and threw the bottle at her. And the fact that she remembers that, and she will tell me, mommy, I remember everything. And so she was there for two and a half years, but the way in which she suffered, the language barriers, being alone all the time, going to a school where the kids taunted her because she wasn't 
really from Mali and, you know, she didn't speak their language and couldn't sing their songs and play their games. You know, that was very traumatic for her. And some other things happened to her during that time. And so the best thing that I have been able to do with her is to, one, help her to seek counseling and to really talk to another person about that. But I'm very grateful that we have a very close relationship that she can, you know, tell me these things herself. And so, you know, those effects are lingering. She has been home for 10 years, nine years, almost 10. And she still has those. She has trust issues around male figures because abduction and then abandonment by her father. You know, she just has a lot of challenges even now. And I also want to say this about my bonus daughter. So as we'll maybe talk about a little bit later, um, through my nonprofit, I Stand Parent Network, we help other children to come home. And we helped a young lady named Nafisa come home from abduction to Egypt. She was seven when she was taken and 17 when she came home. And I'm in constant contact. We're on Facebook together. She's come to my house, you know, just to hang out and things like that. And she has coping behaviors that... I see in her and trying to overcompensate and people please. And at the same time, being very inwardly focused and, you know, um, trying to protect herself in some ways. And so our children suffer so greatly by this. And what we have to do, what I do as a mom is to just shower her with love and affection, give them a space to be honest and talk about their feelings or not. And then importantly, help them connect with other survivors so they can heal together. That's great. And I am so glad that you were able to do that for your daughter and for these other children. This is a message that I am trying to get across to policymakers from around the world time and time again, is that you know these are vulnerable children and the things that happen to them when they are abducted internationally or domestically or even alienated from a parent, this has lifelong effects on them, on the relationships they will create later, on their access to education, to quality health care, their mental stability and well-being. It's not just puzzles that can just be put back together when a child is returned. And I think you really just showed us that with the case of your daughter and this other young lady returned after 10 years in Egypt. I'm so glad that you said that. And I'm hoping, I'm really glad for what Find My Parent is doing and even what we at I Stand are attempting to do and that shift the narrative and shift the conversation and how we talk about international parental child abduction. Even the name implies that the parent's are suffering more than the children. And I don't want to diminish the suffering at all. It is excruciating. I know parents who have taken their lives over this, but I believe the way forward of reform way forward is to really elevate and drive home again and again and again and again, the lifelong deleterious effects of international child abduction on survivors, the ones who come home and the ones who are forever alienated from their parents. We need more attention on them. And it's difficult because parents are advocating and they're the ones that are driving this. But we really do need, as you're saying, to really put the emphasis on the harm being done to children. Absolutely. I could not agree more. 
Another thing that you mentioned earlier that caught my attention was that when you were out there in your community and among your policymakers advocating for the return of your daughter, you did not make, you did not put the focus on your, on your ex-husband, on the abducting parent, but on, on the love for your daughter and the need to bring your daughter back to her home. And I definitely applaud you for that. And I hear time and time again from experts that that's what children actually want. Children don't want to go find their parent online and see this website that's full of anger and hatred towards the abducting parent, but they want to see a website, for example, that shows their true love for that child. And so my question to you is, after your daughter returned, how did you manage, because I'm going to assume that, you know, you would want your daughter to have access or a loving, healthy relationship with her father because you were deprived of that. So how did you manage to kind of allow her and encourage her to have that relationship with her father while at the same time, you know, in the back of your mind, I'm sure you're worried about, you know, reabduction and all the risk and harmful effects your daughter has already experienced. That is a good question. And the sad answer is that her father has chosen not to have any contact with her since she's come home. So she came home, we came home July 11th of 2014. He has not sought one time ever during that time to contact her. And that's very painful. I would absolutely allow it. If today he messaged me or whatever, picked up the phone and called me, I would try to facilitate a relationship safely. And certainly with all of the prevention mechanisms in place to prevent reabduction, but I would certainly encourage him and her to have a relationship. And, you know, the selfish mom part of me candidly, is like, great. I don't want to hear from him anyway. But parent, whenever possible, and this is one of ISTAN's founding principles, whenever possible, children should have the benefit of both parents in their lives. But unfortunately, he's chosen not to contact her. I have, for better or worse, an oversized public presence, digital footprint. And so he could find me any number of ways and has chosen not to. The effect of that, however, goes back to what we talked about before. My daughter has had at a very young age to resolve herself to the fact that she will not, may not ever hear from or see her father again. And we just talked about that too yesterday morning and what that means for her. And we're talking about the power of forgiveness. And even if you don't see that person again. And so she has to carry that and I can't carry that for her. I would. Yeah. So there's no relationship. That's a shame. It is. She's amazing. It's a shame. So you've mentioned a number of times the NGO that you co-founded after this experience with, with your daughter. Can you tell us a bit more about I Stand and the work that you do? I would love to. Thank you so much. So I Stand Parent Network was actually formed before my daughter came home on February 27th of 2014. Um, Senator McConnell made it possible for me to offer testimony at the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations hearing just before passage of the Sean and David Goldman Act. 
And as many, at least in the U.S., know that law ostensibly was supposed to make it easier for our nation to hold nations accountable for returning internationally kidnapped children. So I offered testimony that day on my experience. This is right before I went to Mali and we came home together. That day in the audience, there were a couple of other parents that this has happened to, two women in particular, um, Alyssa Segaris and uh, Liana Thompson, who had both returned their children from Greece and Israel, respectively. And so they were in the audience and watching were some other parents watching from their homes in various places in the United States. And after that hearing, Alyssa, Liana, and I kind of gathered in the hallway and we said, this is BS. The way that this nation has been been handling this issue for so long is inadequate. And we believe that a concerted parent advocate oriented group can help do better, can help improve outcomes, can help more children come home through our shared experiences, and then maybe pushing this big ball uphill to get federal government to act. Um, more appropriately. And so that was the day that I stand was born. And over the next couple of weeks, a few more joined this Zoom call, or it wasn't Zoom at the time, this um, like tele teleconference call that we had. And each week, a couple more parents would join. And we decided that we should have a conference, a gathering in Washington, D.C. And so on June 11th and 12th, um, the hearing was February 27th, and June 11th and 12th, 13 parents from all across the nation gathered in Washington, D.C. in this little dingy hotel that had given us some free space. And that day, we formed I Stand Parent Network. And our goal was, again, to empower parents to return their children from international parental child abduction through our experiences, and then also to advocate for forceful public policy and legal reform. And so since that time, iStand has grown in ways that I never, ever would have imagined. We have volunteers come and go, but we remain steadfast in first serving parents and now whole families to help them either prevent their children from being taken or return them home. And we have accumulated lots of skill sets, volunteers, attorneys who will, you know, help guide us, et cetera. And so, you know, that's kind of how we came to be. That's really amazing. So if any of our listeners want to get involved in iStand and the work that you do, how can they go about doing so? Ah, thank you. Wonderful question. The work is great and the laborers are few. We definitely need help. And I always like to tell parents when they want to help but feel overwhelmed, you know, by the vast complexity of the issue, the thing that you're good at in your other real life, you can be good at in this cause. And so I would encourage anyone to find us on Facebook. We have a Facebook page, I Stand Parent Network. You can message us there. You can also contact me at noel at istandparentnetwork.com and we can get you plugged in. You don't have to do what I do and what some of our you know board of directors do in terms of kind of immersive work. You can share on social media. You can volunteer for our upcoming conference to maybe help us facilitate our Zoom sessions. Um, you can, there's just all sorts of ways. And so I would encourage parents and survivors to link up with us. And I wanted to say survivors in particular, because one of the things that I'm just so 
just deeply great for is that we have this growing cohort of survivors. I mentioned two of them, my daughter, Nafisa, there are uh, two children in um, the Nashville area um, and a few in Florida that they're connecting and creating their own youth survivor network. We connect them every year at our annual conference in Washington, D.C., and we're striving now to create a bi-monthly online engagement for them. And so wherever a person, a parent, a grandparent, a sibling, a survivor thinks that they can fit in, we definitely have ideas that I stand. And I did want to say that I'm pretty hard on myself as a leader of ISTAN. I always know that we should be doing more, 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 but I have the luxury of doing more because my daughter is home. And so, you know, we've been able successfully to return or reunite. Sometimes that means access to the parents versus returning them home. 55 children over our nine years of existence. And we don't do that alone. We do that because volunteers share our stories and come on board for short and long-term commitments. That's great. So I will be sure to add your email and the link to your website and Facebook page in the description for this podcast. So if anybody's interested in checking out I Stand volunteering or just staying up to date on, on your events, your work, the upcoming conference of October, they can do so. So, so you mentioned earlier, you really created ISTAN because you saw uh, big gaps, you know, at the national level in the response to international parental abduction. Do you think that those gaps still exist today? Are American leaders fulfilling their commitment towards our children who've been abducted domestically or internationally? You know, Danielle, I tell you, the timing of your questions and this podcast interview are really divinely inspired and very timely. Just this morning, I was thinking about how egregious it is that I am in agreement with a former senator, now long deceased, named Strom Thurmond. Um, And Strom Thurmond was a U.S. senator who, for various reasons, was just an awful person. But I'm in agreement with him because in a hearing in the early 80s, he is on record as saying the U.S. government is not fulfilling its obligations to these vulnerable constituents and their parents by these lack of robust engagement with foreign nations to return our children home. And I could fast forward to 2022, where we are now, And actually, we're looking to do a study here at my university comparing the rhetoric of members of Congress over time on this issue because it sounds the same. And if I sound like I'm getting animated, it's because I am. It's very frustrating and causes me no amount of consternation that even despite over 20 years of U.S. attention to this issue, these gaps in service remain these gaps in how our government vis-a-vis the State Department, who was the central authority charged with assisting parents on this issue, how I can get a great country officer, but a parent that I'm assisting has one that won't respond or, you know, tries to deflect or won't really um, zealously help this parent. We know parents have to lead this, but we think our government could and should do better. And so that type of variation has existed for two decades. 
Now, I won't say that it's all bad and that there have been some improvements. And I can say that we are seeing some significant improvements in preventing IPCA from the United States to foreign nations. I'm only learning, you know, now how this is occurring in the diaspora of countries. But Prevention is much improved, much improved. And, you know, there is a prevent abduction program through the Department of Homeland Security that if you can provide certain documentations, they can enroll your children in this essential no-fly program for at-risk children. Congressional attention waxes and wanes on this issue. So parents were very optimistic when the Goldman Act was passed in 2014. And we have seen the reporting from the State Department doing um, improving, but I'm not convinced that we have seen a more robust and unified U.S. approach to resolving abductions and working with countries to hold them accountable. And so there's still much work to be done. Yeah, I remember from one of the testimonies you did in front of Congress, you explaining how big of a role the ambassador, I guess it was the U.S. ambassador in Mali, had when your daughter was returned, that she even, I believe it was a female, Mm -hmm. she escorted you and your daughter to the airplane, right, as you left the country heading back home to the U.S. And this is in strong contrast to other parents that I meet from, you know, in dealing with parental abduction to various countries on the world. Japan is one, for example, Mm -hmm. where they have filed hate conventions. They've done everything that they're supposed to do. And nearly a decade later, their children have still been abducted. They're, they're not, they're, they're not returning home or parents that call the embassy and, you know, the embassy hangs up on them or is clearly annoyed. I don't, you know, you're bothering me when this, this parent is going through one of the worst experiences. So I mean, I would say clearly, it's cut of luck. If you happen to be in a constituent of a politician who's willing to take on your case and fight for you, you're lucky. If you happen to have uh, an ambassador or you know staff at the embassy in the country where the parental abduction took place, you're lucky. But as far as like a central mechanism that's coming directly from the State Department at the central level, ensuring that there is a systematic effort to return these children, that's what's really, I would say, lacking. Wouldn't you agree? I absolutely agree with that. And you used the absolute key term. It's the term that we use. We regularly meet with uh, the Office of Children's Issues, which is the central authority here. We regularly meet with members of Congress. I stand By we, I mean I stand and our coalition partners. And systematic response is what we need. Because the deflection that we hear often is, well, every case is different. It is and it isn't. But even if every case is different, that's all the more reason for systematic response, standardized response from our government at every level, meaning that my country officer, who was a wonderful and amazing, the other country officers are wonderful and amazing. And it doesn't even have to be touchy-feely like that. They just do their job, so to speak. And, you know, I hate that you also have heard parents who call embassies and like they hang up on them and annoyed with them and won't help them. It's so common and it's very, very upsetting. Um, And so one of the questions that I raised in the most recent hearing that I was honored to testify at, and that was uh, the Tom Lantos Human Rights Commission hearing, which is was convened by our number one champion in Washington and probably one of the foremost policy actors in the world on this, and that's Representative Chris Smith, the author of the Goldman Act. You know, I asked him, why do I get a Cadillac response 
for my daughter, because like you said, because I had some politicians and some prominent officials who took my case to heart. Why did it have to come there? Why can't the standard operating procedures, which we know exist in the foreign policy manual, why don't those apply everywhere? Why aren't they uniformly applied? And, you know, to your point, I don't really tell a lot of my personal, um, our exit story, because it's, I won't say it's embarrassing, an embarrassment of riches, but When I left the country, you indicated correctly that the U.S. ambassador put us on the plane. Before that, she came and picked us up at our lodge. Before that, with Marines, we were escorted to the airport by U.S. Marines in her vehicle. Before that, she, the Mali Minister of Justice and my attorney and the translator, we all met together. I guarantee you every parent does not need that type of response or want that type of response. They just want their kids home. And so we have a long way to go, but we're definitely going to get there. I'm absolutely resolved with my life that we are going to improve federal response to this, state response to this, local response to this, and then working with you and find my parent and other international NGOs, we are going to change the way that this issue is approached at every level of government. It's just, that's the way it's got to be. Yeah, absolutely. And I am also optimistic. There is a lot of activity, a lot of players coming in, and I think a lot more light and awareness happening about how much this really affects people. I've never experienced international or domestic parental abduction or alienation myself, but once I started getting involved in this cause, it's so surprising how many people I come across that have experienced it just because now I'm looking for it. It's so common. We just don't realize it because it's not an, you know, an everyday conversation we have in our, in our communities. So we talked a lot about, you know, the shortcomings of the government. And I know it's a very complex issue and there are many players involved, you know, from the local all the way up to the international level. But if you had to really name three key actions that the federal, let's say the federal government, U.S. government needs to take to prevent and to resolve or speed up the resolution of international parental abductions today, what would those three actions be? I think the number one action would be for the U.S. government, essentially the State Department, to enforce the laws on the books. So the Goldman Act um, has several important provisions for how the United States ought to react and respond to countries who are deemed habitually noncompliant in returning what we call America's stolen children. Those can range from something as simple as a demarche, which is a formal letter, up to canceling state visits, withholding visa applications, and withholding non-essential aid. And so those provisions should be followed because there is only so much that even if our State Department were functioning at optimal level and assisting every parent as they are mandated to do as the central authority, that would not necessarily affect other nations' behaviors. 
But the United States getting serious about enforcing the provisions under the Goldman Act would cause most countries to, um, as we say, start packing those children up and sending them home. Because the United States, for better or worse, still holds enormous sway in the global community. And so if our State Department would start to enforce those provisions of the Goldman Act and stop relying on the merits of diplomacy alone, I think that children would start to return. So that's one. Enforce the laws on the books. Two, the U.S. really needs to take, the U.S. government needs a wholesale public education campaign in the same way that the blue campaign through the Department of Homeland Security over the years has made human trafficking known, understood, and now people watch for it and like flight attendants and law enforcement to suspected trafficking, if the United States would employ a, what we would like to call the orange campaign to educate about international parental child abduction, how it happens, when it happens, what are the signs, you know, those types of things. I think greater public awareness could speak to what you just said. It's very, very common, but most people don't know until it either happens to them or somebody around them or somehow brought to them. We could prevent a lot. And so I think that prevention leading to the third top three, I think that prevention absolutely should be the orientation for NGOs, for our U.S. government, and for others. And so, again, enforcing the laws on the book and getting stern with countries according to those laws, engaging in a public education campaign to educate so that people know what this is and do it in a, you know, a wholesale way versus a little Facebook message here or there, and then enact stronger prevention, robust prevention measures. I think those are pretty important. Yeah, I would agree. And they're and they're actionable. These are things that they could act on today if they really wanted to. So we also have, you know, the Hague Convention, of course, and, and we see the U.S. government in a, on a regular basis, you know, trying to convince countries who have not ratified the Hague to do so. Do you think the Hague Convention is doing an effective job in resolving international parental abduction around the world? See, this is a difficult question. I first have to approach this question from a research perspective because we don't know how effective the Hague Convention is because there's no real uniform reporting on returns under the Hague Convention globally. Anecdotally, I know a couple, four or five, I know four or five parents who the Hague worked like a charm absolutely worked exactly like it was supposed to. Those parents still had to drive it. They still had to, you know, educate themselves and get attorneys in one nation and another nation, which I don't think we really talked about how expensive this is, but your audience probably knows that for sure. They still had to drive it, but the Hague worked for them. But more common, especially with Japan and Brazil, and in Mexico and other nations that we know are Hague treaty partners with the United States, it's sometimes hit or miss, as you said. I liked your term. It's cut of luck sometimes. And as we are beginning, um, you know that I have, uh, ISTIN has a partnership with uh, Lebanese Base, I hope. We're beginning to look at why Gulf nations and 
nations in which Islamic law is the highest law, why they don't ascribe to the Hague Convention. I'm reading a book right now called Jurisdictional Exceptionalisms by Anver Inman and Irfan Khalik, and it talks about why the Hague Convention on its face and from its inception could never really be adopted by certain nations because it was very Western in its orientation. It had certain universal conceptions of children's rights and women's rights that may not be compatible with Islamic law in certain nations. And so I don't think The Hague is effective because we haven't seen the evidence that it is. And, you know, I really, I I think I heard something between the lines there about your assertion that the United States keeps trying to convince and insist that the Hague Convention is the way to go to resolve abductions. And on more than a few occasions, I remember members of Congress in particular challenging State Department representatives at hearings, like, how do you know? that there aren't other ways to resolve abductions through the Hague Convention. And so our government and other governments have not, from my perspective and research, demonstrated through numbers, through data, that the Hague Convention is as efficacious as it aspires to be. More often than not, unfortunately, it seems to be an impediment for some parents to return their children. We're working with a wonderful parent whose son was abducted to the Ukraine, and this was well before uh, the Russian invasion. And you know the Hague Convention is the spirit is six weeks to determine the habitual residence and then proceed from there. Almost a year later, this father still had not had a Hague hearing. And this is very, very common. So I'm not a fan of the Hague. At that very first hearing that I testified at, even Molly is not a signatory where my nation was abducted, I call the Hague Convention a paper tiger. And I'm just going to keep calling it that until we have evidence to the contrary. I do really love how you mentioned that, you know, we we need to have evidence that is so important. We can't just you know, assume that, okay, we have this piece of paper and countries are signing it and saying, you know, they're going to abide by it and comply. We need to actually have evidence on children. Are they being returned? And I also also think on, um, you know, are parents actually applying for it? Because you mentioned the cost, which is rightly so. If I've had policymakers tell me that, well, you know, it's going great in Japan, for example, because Hague cases are going down. Well, hate cases are probably going down because it doesn't work and because it's too costly. So parents are trying to find other ways. So it's it's not really a success of the Hague. So I really love that focus on, on research. And I'm, I'm excited to see some of these publications, hopefully, that will come out talking about how, how we can use maybe other methods aside from the Hague in countries, for example, in the Middle East, where the Hague Convention is probably not feasible and adaptable to the local political and judicial systems. And I also love that earlier how you mentioned, and I strongly believe in this as well, is that we all have unique skill sets in life, whether we be developers or really great at public speaking or we're entrepreneurs and we know how to run a business and that we can really all use these skills to help the cause. You know, we don't all have to be fundraisers or, you know, diplomats to do something. And I know you are a university professor and you definitely 
use that skill set that you have and that access you have to young people to spread awareness and encourage sustainable action to prevent and resolve parental abduction. So can you tell us a bit more about your work as a university professor and how you align that with your advocacy work in parental abduction? No, thank you so much. I used everything in the classroom every experience that is appropriate and relevant. I'm a professor of political science. And so I use all of my both professional, personal and professional reference sets to transmit to students uh, the power, responsibility, and role of government in solving public problems. And I consider international parental child abduction to be a public problem. The evidence of that is that there have been laws, you know, that have been adopted to try to address this and laws address public problems. And so in my, I've tried to do it in a couple of ways. In my 101 class, which is an introduction to political science, when we get to the chapter on the federal bureaucracy, and I'm trying to explain, you know, that the bureaucracies aren't like always a byword or four letter word, you know, I give them the example of how um, both not just the federal bureaucracy and also Congress, how these huge institutions that seem far apart and inaccessible were actually very essential to the return of my daughter. The State Department as one of the largest bureaucracies on the planet, um, the State Department um, had a very specific office to help me to um, resolve this. And so I try to educate on how government is closer to you than you think. And that's what I tell parents when they don't wanna, like they're nervous about contacting the State Department or don't know if they should contact Congress. I'm like, well, that's what they're there for. And so I educate students along that as well. When it comes to the uh, chapter on Congress, you know, I bring out not just Senator McConnell's effort in my case, but my other, my House representative was named, I was in Kentucky at the time, was named Harold Rogers. And during the time of Muna's abduction, he was the chairman of the House Appropriations Committee. And so I pull up footage where during the State Department's reauthorization hearing, my member of Congress stops then Secretary of State, Secretary of State John Kerry and says, yeah, yeah, what about all of this? But what about my constituent's daughter? And I use that to talk about the power of members of Congress to help drive your case. Well, Secretary Kerry had to give him an answer, and then he had to go back and put more pressure on people in the State Department to help resolve my case. And so I use that to say that government is not all bad. As a matter of fact, I'm a huge proponent of government is challenging. And even looking now, when we look at the hyperpartisan nature of it, you know, it's, it's challenging, but I use these real life scenarios to educate. But what I'm most excited about is a special topics course that I taught last semester in which I had 17 students um, enrolled in the course was the politics and policies of international parental child abduction. And here's how I know that this problem can be solved. I know it in other ways too. So in their first two assignments, I gave them like a primer. I gave them lots of links and reports and anecdotes about international parental child abduction and asked each of them to write 25 questions. The questions that they wrote, most of them never having known anything about this issue, except that most of them had been in class with me and were taking it because of the compelling nature of my story and my desire to do something about it. Every one of them wrote questions that we have been asking for years. 
Why is the State Department's response inadequate? Why do nations have such variation in the way that they approach this issue, et cetera? And so that gives me hope that there is, a, like you said, there's more eyes, more attention, a whole new generation of interested, educated people who can press for reforms. And of those 17 students, 13 of them traveled with me to Washington, D.C. in October of 2021 and presented at uh, I Stand Parent Network's annual conference. And their work, some of them are now being circulated on Capitol Hill. In particular, one of them wrote a policy brief. And every time I have a contact with someone in Washington on Capitol Hill, you know, I send that to them. Some of their work, I was just on a call with uh, Senator Tillis's office and one of my coalition partners yesterday, and he brought up something that one of my students had presented during our meeting with them when we were in Washington. And so I was sorry, that's a long way to brag on them and also say that, you know, I'm using my job and my platforms to educate and advocate. And whatever your job, whatever your platform, whatever your skill sets, there's room to educate and advocate on this issue. And so what I hope is the next step using my skills here and using my position at the university. We have submitted a proposal to, I'm at the University of Alabama in Huntsville. We submitted a proposal to establish the first office for IPCA research and prevention here. We don't know if it's going to be approved, although we have strong indications that the university is behind this because they're the ones that pay to send all of those students to Washington. They're bringing an eminent scholar on this issue to campus in spring of 2023 to educate on it. And so fingers crossed, prayers up, blessings out. We should have an office established that's really going to do the work and show the proof of where the gaps are and then drive and engage conversation and solutions to help children stop suffering. And that's really what it boils down to for me. That is absolutely amazing. And we're very excited to see how that turns out and, and to see what, what kind of research and evidence that research center can bring forward and really help drive policies that we need in the country. So we often, when we talk about parental abduction, we often talk about, you know, how can we convince policymakers to do something? How can we convince the State Department to actually fulfill their duties? But why would you say that it's actually important to engage with young people like you're doing at the university? And for everyday people who might not be teachers or professors, how can they go about engaging young people on the issue? an important question. I have to think about it a little bit more, but my first response is because young people colloquially ain't got time for that. They don't have time to understand why our government of vast resources, of vast knowledge, of vast skill sets and expertise can't solve this very low-hanging fruit problem. This is not an intractable problem like poverty. This is not an intractable problem that, you know, we cannot solve. We may not be able to fully eradicate IPCA, especially as freedom of movement continues and all of this kind of, you know, all of these um, circumstances and situations that may fuel international abductions. But young people and I'm talking about the ones that I am engaged with now, they are able to approach this without emotion. 
And the one of the number one suggestions that I give to parents when I'm advocating with them for their children is, I know how much this hurts. I know how emotional it is. But when you are engaging with government, they don't care about the emotion. Every once in a while, you'll get a member of Congress who is moved like emotionally, like in my case, they were emotionally moved, but more often than not, they will not be. And young people, young educators, young scholars are not driven by emotion. They are driven by, and I've been teaching for 15 years, so I think I can say this with some legitimacy. They are driven by evidence and they are driven by, you know, conundrums and a desire to be of service. Young people, this generation wants to serve. They want significance. They want meaning. They want impact. They want to be more than TikTok or whatever, and they need opportunities to do so. And IPCA isn't the only one. You know, there are many opportunities for them to serve, but it's been my experience over and over again in the nine years because I have taught at other universities where I've brought this in. They want to help. And they want to help out of their experience. And so I think young people, it's important to engage them as issue because they can be change makers because they um, are now of a generation that doesn't have to settle for piecemeal solutions as our generations have done. They have the power, the intellect, the social connectivity, the technological savvy to solve problems. And we should engage them in that. Absolutely. So I just want to wrap up by asking you, you know, as a person, as a parent who's experienced international parental abduction, would you have any advice for parents who are currently going through that? Perhaps something you wish you would have done differently looking, you know, back eight, nine years at your experience or any other advice you might have for these parents? I think the first one, you know, is don't wait for our government to lead. You lead. And link them inextricably to your case that they can't uh, extract themselves. We joke, it's an unfunny joke, but we, we joke we in our parent community that we have to be the attorney, we have to be the quarterback, we have to be the linebacker, we have to be all the other sports metaphor positions that you have to play, but we also have to be the chief diplomat. We also have to, more often than not, educate our attorneys. And so be prepared. And if you're already doing it, continue your full court press, your multimodal approach. That's what I tell parents, that this is a multimodal approach. My country officer, I used to hate it when she'd say this to me, but she was absolutely right. Manage your expectations that even though you're member of Congress or your district attorney or whomever should care, that doesn't mean that they automatically will. And loose yourself and them from the expectation that they have to be emotionally tied to your case to help. As a matter of fact, calm, cool, collected is how we need to proceed here. And I sometimes tell parents, you know, I don't mean this in any offensive way, but in the same way that the abductor was very methodical about planning and now implementing and maintaining abduction, you also have to be very methodical. You have to continue to seek out new ways and new directions, especially if some element of your support 
and health network is in functioning as it should. We have to continually think of creative ways to help return your children home. And I would also, my advice, I, I was never real. I'm not an angry person. And so, you know, I can't really speak to what it means to rage about having your children abducted, but I know plenty of parents that are. And so I validate that anger with them and ask them to channel that into action. I would also, my advice, as we talked about earlier, the abducting parent probably does deserve all of the epithets and the things that you're thinking about them because of the cruelty that they are perpetuating on your child and you. But demonizing them is never going to help. It's never, or I should say seldom, it's seldom going to be helpful. And so put your focus on and your articulations and your public statements and all of your rhetoric on the harm being done to your child or children, the necessity for them to return home and heal. I think those would be my primary pieces of advice. And then most importantly, this is so isolating. This is such an isolating experience. And nine years later, I'm getting emotional because I had a a huge support network, but I still felt very alone until I linked up with those other parents and we became iStand. And so link up with other parents, one or two, if that's your preferred method, or a whole network through iStand or through any of our partner organizations. This is too lonely and isolated an experience to endure without support. Thank you, Noelle, for taking the time to speak with us today. I always love speaking to advocates who share important information and advice about international parental abduction, but even more so, I'm happy to hear of positive success stories of children being returned home to their parents. I'm very much looking forward to the partnership we've developed between iStand and Find My Parent and what that will bring about in the future. I want to thank everybody who listened to this podcast episode today. Don't forget to check the description of the episode for links to iStand's website, as well as their social media pages. And stay tuned for next week's episode. to see